With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. A couple of months ago, I started the A to Z of Snooker, and it's exactly as it sounds. We take a letter, it stands for something from the snooker world, and we talk about it with a group of guests. And uh, part three is uh, about to follow. You can go back and listen to parts one and two. It might take a while to get through this alphabet, but we start at J, and my guests were Phil Yates and Michael McMullen. Right, J is for Jester, as in Mark Selby. Um... To me, one of the most remarkable stories in snooker, you know, he grew up in a very poor family. His dad had to, had to look after him, couldn't afford to play snooker. Um, Malcolm Thorne at Willie Thorne's in Leicester said, if you come and brush the tables, you can play for free. And he did, and he played all day long. He's worked harder than, I would say, most of the players on the tour, and he's got himself to world number one. I don't see what's not to like about him. Well, as a person, he's absolutely smashing for me. He's uh, very engaging. He's never changed either. Um, Success has never changed him. He's exactly the same now as he was when he was uh, a youngster coming through on on the tour. The one thing I always think about Selby is that in snooker scene, we used to do lots of reports about Malcolm Thorne's junior tournaments at the old Willie Thorne Snooker Centre, under-14s, under-16s, all that kind of stuff. And he was coming through at the same time as Tom Ford. And it was generally recognised that Ford was Mm. the most talented Mm. and therefore had the most potential. And yet when they turned professional, it was Selby who really kicked on, you know, and, and, and hit the heights. I don't think I've ever seen anyone who is quite so versatile. He's a fantastic match player. He's prepared to grind. He can win a very high percentage of scrappy frames. But as his statistics show, he's a very good break builder as well. I think he's the all-round player, and I think he's just an all-round good guy also. And if you are a heavy scorer like that, and you don't have the tactical side to back it up, people say you're never going to go very far. Then you look at someone like Selby, who does have the all-round game. He's as heavy a scorer as anyone. And people just dismiss him as a grinder, so you can't really win. I think that background you mentioned, Dave, you know, has been a big factor in his success, the way he battles, the way he just never gives up and always just finds a way to win because he's had to scrap for everything. It may sound a bit cliché, but I think it's true that that has you know, uh, impacted on his attitude to his profession uh, ever since then. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. He's been world number one for four years. Um, but if you look back, people like Davis and Hendry and Ronnie to a degree, they've sort of kept themselves apart a little bit from the other players. 
Whereas Mark, and I think it does tie into his background, I think the snooker circuit is like a family to him. Mm. He's got his own family now, he's married with a child, but you know, he'll talk to anyone, he treats everyone the same. If, mm. I think if you walked in and you didn't know anything about snooker, you wouldn't think that's the world number one. You yeah. just think, oh, he's a bloke who gets on with everyone. And it's different now, isn't it? Because they spend so much time together, they travel so much together. It would be much harder, I think, to set yourself apart yeah. in that way. Well, I remember one of those early tournaments in Shanghai when he got to the semi-finals, and he was engaging with the fans then and genuinely uh, you know, in, in enjoying that process. And there was, a, I suppose, their version of a, a queue zone upstairs where there were pool tables and snooker tables. And he was playing frames with them and stuff. Mm. And he's, he's always been that way. I think he's a great ambassador for but the But that, that, that tri- same trip also showed his gross naivety. Because mm. he was only, still a teenager, wasn't he? And, and we were there when he uh, it was one in the morning, pitch black outside. And he thought it was the afternoon. He was so jet lagged, he just didn't understand. He was in his dress suit trying to get a car to the venue. And Iron Williams, the referee, basically had to say, "Mark, it's one a- one a.m." Yeah, yeah. He th- <laughs> and he, he thought it was basically dark all year round yeah. there because it was it was the middle of winter. Yeah. And- Extraordinary. You mentioned Tom Ford there. If you take it on the stage, you look at other players who broke through around the same time. Neil Robertson's an obvious example, although he's had a great career. I think of the players who were coming through around the sort of early 2000s. Selby wouldn't have been the one you would have picked out to emerge as the most successful of no. that, that group. And by far and away, he, he, he has been so far. But I think that's, that's why, because there is, I mean, all right, online criticism is a, is a sort of subgenre on its, on, of itself. But I think that's why people, some people don't like him, because they look at him and they think, why haven't I done it? You know, why haven't I done something? He had yes. nothing, and he's made it, and I haven't. That's, well, that's what it is. What greater tribute is there to anyone yeah. than to be jealous of them? Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic yeah. if people are jealous of yeah. you, you yes. know, because it means yeah. you've achieved fantastic things that uh, you know, other people know they never will. And when he first turned professional, he had this wide-ranging, sort of unwieldy yeah. cue action, mm. which he realised, after a while, had to be changed, and he put in the hard work to change it. And now, when he plays well, we're here at the Championship League recording this, and a couple of matches he's played in Group 5... So silky and very, very impressive. He used to sway like a sniper. He was like Lee Harvey Oswald for a while, wasn't he? But, um, uh, but, but as we do record this, though, you could argue it's something of a crossroads. He's still world number one because he's got all these points he's built up. But he's not really doing it at the moment in the big tournaments, is he? You know, with the Masters, he played great in the first round. And then quarterfinals just kind of didn't show up against Trump. World Championship went out first day last year. UK Championship went out first round. So something has changed somewhere. Well, you alluded to it, I think, on the Masters podcast that we did, that maybe he builds up the standout events a bit too much now. I mean, last season he missed the two Home Nations events either side of the UK Championship completely backfired because he ended up going out so early on. And I do think there was an element of that last week in the, in the quarter-final. You could see that, OK, you know, he'd had his best result in one of those big standout events you know, since 2017, saw it as a chance to maybe turn things around, and just wasn't able to deal with it at all. It was a shocking performance in the quarter-final. If I'm going to be critical of Mark in any way, I think it would be the fact that he's a snooker player who absolutely thoroughly enjoys being on the circuit. Why pull out of those events? Because, OK, you know, he, he might get burnout, but the point is, if he goes out of the UK Championship early, which he did, he's then got a, a large swathe of time where he's hardly playing any snooker at all in the middle of the season, so I would play in them. He sees Ronnie doing it. And maybe he thinks, okay, that's the way to do it. But it works for Ronnie. It clearly isn't working for Mark, and he needs to have a rethink about that. If we are going to talk about him, of course, we have to mention he was also, 2006, I think, the world eight-ball pool Mm. champion. Mm. So not many people have won world titles in two different disciplines. Do you see him winning any more world titles? Absolutely. 
uh, you know me, I'm, I'm never going to say so-and-so will win the World Championship, either for the first time or again. You just can't say whether they will or not, because it is so difficult to do, and so many imponderables over 17 days, but he's certainly got the capabilities. Well, yeah. He could certainly be the champion in 2019. I think that's the thing, anyone who's won it once, you can see winning it again, because mm. they know how to win it, and yeah. they, they prove they can. And he did go in, um, certainly to at least one of the World Championships he did win, you know, not being talked about much at all, because he hadn't done it all season, mm. and uh, managed to find it at the Crucible. Uh, yeah, certainly capable of winning another one. Have to say, I wouldn't be overly surprised if he didn't, though. Three's not bad, though, is it? In oh, this God, era, no. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> Let's move on to now. Kay is slightly misleading because it's for Knowles, as in Tony Knowles, but it's actually about shocks because, of course, he uh, is the author of still one of the biggest ever shocks uh, at the Crucible, beating Davis ten-one in, in eighty-two when Steve was defending champion. Um, we'll start with that, and then we'll come on to some other shocks. Uh, I mean, is it still a sort of top ten of that for you, Phil? I think it's a top one, right. uh, purely and simply because Davis at the time was absolutely dominant. It wasn't just the fact he was winning matches and winning pretty much all of the tournaments. It was the fact he was winning them with so much ease, and he was clearly a class above everyone else at the time. So that's in itself, losing by any score would have been a shock. But to lose 10-1, mm. it was. I was at university at the time in Bradford and we, we got the, the score 8-1 after the first session. I couldn't quite believe it. And I remember all of the guys who played snooker at Bradford University, we all piled into the, the communal TV room there to see the end of it. And even then we're thinking, oh, Davis probably probably win from here. And of course it was 10-1 and I remember Nolsey potting a, a really sort of, you know, Good pink at the end there, and screwing back and celebrating all. That. And and you think, well, how has this happened? It, it to me, it still is the biggest shock. I think uh, this is a very different match. The other shock I would say was when um, Stephen Hendry lost to uh, Ty Pushit in uh, in Thailand after Pushit had spent the previous six weeks in a in a Buddhist monastery and he got his head <laughs> shaved and he was an amateur and he beat Hendry five two. But that was a completely different set of circumstances. Biggest shock ever for me. The, the thing with Steve, people say he was burnt out, that he had, you know, made too much of his year as champion, had tried to exploit it too much and was just burnt out. Apparently he was doing a book signing because they started unusually, I think, in an evening session it was uh, a, back then. And he was doing a book signing in Sheffield the day of the match. Madness. It was a Friday start. Yeah. 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 But that's the thing about Snooker, you know, it's a two-horse race. It's one v one, and one's going to win. And obviously, and there's endless punditry now, of which we're of course a part of. But you know, it's, things can happen. Someone can be ill. Someone can have problems off the table you don't know about, and the other guy can win. Mm. And, and and that was that was Steve Davis's uh, version of what happened to Stephen Hendry when he lost nine 0 to Marcus Campbell mm. in the UK Championship. How I'm, I really like Marcus, and he was a good player. But how with Hendry? still in tournament-winning form, as he was, because after the UK Championship, the next event, he won in Malta. How could he possibly lose 9-0 to Marcus Campbell? And that's why they are the two shocks that we all remember the most. It's just the scale of the defeat. If Campbell had beaten him 9-8, uh, you know, nobody really would have remembered it all that much. But as you say, just you cannot still, even now, 20 years on, get your head around the scale of that. Yeah. And that's why I think it's, again, you know, a good player can always beat a great player. But, again... Had Knowles beaten Davis 10-9, that would still be remembered, of course, because it was Steve at that time. But 10 frames to one, I mean, you just, even now, cannot get your head around the, the enormity of that. And it must also be uh, remembered that subsequently Knowles went on to become world number two and former Crucible semi-finalist, you know, and a very good player. But at the time, he wasn't all that well known to people outside of the game. So for him to beat Davis, as Michael said, by such a hefty scoreline, extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of anatomy of a shock, I guess, is that you have to have 
an absolute, well, the top player really. So Davis was and Hendry was when 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 you just mentioned that one, mm. um, and someone who you just don't expect to beat them. Basically, this was Tony Knowles before Tony Knowles, if you like, mm. he, before he became a top player. Marcus Campbell was mid-ranking, but mm. not you know if he was going to win, it'd probably be nine eight. He wasn't going to yes. beat nine nil. Um, but let's move on to sort of shock winners of tournaments. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, and we haven't discussed this before, Phil. So I'm going to put you right on the spot. Who is the most surprising winner of a ranking event? There are a lot of candidates. I, I have to say. I mean, in, in terms of in terms of odds, you would probably say Dave Harold, five hundred to one when he won the 1993 Asian Open. But as he subsequently proved, Dave was a really accomplished match player what about I'll throw a name in Bob Chaperon yeah I'd say up there yeah I mean it, it helped that there was an open draw clearly at that tournament also it, all everything went for him I remember he required a, a large number of snookers in the last 16 against Alain Robidoux his fellow French Canadian and then he beat Alex Higgins in the final uh, that was a that was a big one yeah um, Tony Jones yeah I mean the European Open I mean you know he was a decent enough player but and, and that actually helped him into the top 16 at the end of that season but that was an extraordinary event I know you were at it Phil in uh, Rotterdam wasn't it yeah yeah and I mean it was just full of surprises Tony Jones playing Mark Johnston Alan, in the final uh, you know was, was was really extraordinary lineup but uh, he didn't really go on to accomplish much after that and you look at Dave Harold he actually did mm. you know pretty well got to the Grand Prix finals in the Northern Ireland final as well as recently as 2008 but in the context of his whole career uh, I, I, I would agree with you Dave I think Chaperon probably even more so but Tony Jones not far behind I think we've had a, a candidate this year not based on his ability mind you I've seen him play some fantastic matches but in terms of where he was in the rankings Jimmy Robertson yeah. winning uh, the, you know, the yeah, European yeah. Masters yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. shocks get everyone excited in their big stories but sometimes if you get too many torments become well maybe less interesting. I remember when Steve Maguire won the UK Championship and he played fantastically well and you kind of knew because so many top players went out, you just knew he was so much better than everyone else left in it, he was going to win it and it almost took the drama away and there was a tournament I think John Higgins won in the 90s where basically everyone else lost as well. The International Open, yeah, I think he was number 11 at the time and I think none of the top 10 got past the second round. That was the tournament where Stephen Hendry lost to Rod Lawler. You had people like Nick Pearce and Carl Broughton having their moment in the spotlight. Nick Pearce, he was in a recent episode of Doctor Who. I wasn't he's expecting become, this he's twist. become like an actor now. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. well, it's just a side issue. But yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the odds on that nine-timer, the nine of the top ten going out yeah. in the first round in Swindon, the odds were something like 353,000 to one. It was just crazy. I'm sure Nick Pierce, incidentally, would like to take the TARDIS back to that week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. relive it all. Yeah. Absolutely. I always say, when you see, you know, you've got enthusiastic young lads in the, in the press room and they're whooping up about, you know, about shock results, I always say, be careful what you wish for mm. because the odd shock is a great story and it enhances a tournament. A slew of shocks ruins a tournament. Mm. It always does, always, without exception. I don't remember us doing any whooping up 20 years ago no, about any no, shocks. Because no, no. no. there weren't many shocks in those no, days. No, no, but yeah. it, it does. I mean, it yeah. just, you know, because the, the, the public can't identify, they can identify with an outsider and an unknown playing a big name, but they can't identify with two unknowns playing each other. Mm. Because, you yes. know, yeah. I think if you get too much of it, it becomes a problem. That British Open that Chaperon won, now I think there was only one top 16 player in the quarterfinals, and he was ranked number 16. Yeah. And I thought it was great, actually, because you were seeing all these new faces coming through. But I think if you see too much of that, um, you know, 
it becomes you know a bit excessive. You do want to see the big names, yeah. but you know every now and then to have a tournament like that and you know it throws the door open. I think when you have all the big names gone out, yeah. uh, you know then you know the door is open and it's exciting to see who's going to get their big breakthrough win. Uh, but if you just have, as you say, one big name and a load of you know lesser players, it's nearly always that big name yeah. that takes advantage of that opportunity and sort of it peters out a bit. And also, if you get a load of lower-ranked or unknown players playing each other in the quarterfinals, because they sense it is their golden chance to make an impression and to earn a nice few quid, that they tend to become all of them tense, and the standard falls. The, st- the uh, pace of play becomes slower and sometimes you get batches that aren't particularly attractive mm. Finally on this um, we'll, we'll say Crucible era um, biggest shock in a world final obviously Terry Griffiths won it at his first attempt um, beat Dennis Taylor in 1979 for me though it's got to be Joe isn't it Joe Johnson? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to think of anything that even really compares to that. I think people exaggerate with Joe's status in the game at that time. People said, oh, he'd never won a match on TV. Well, he'd been in the semis of the Mercantile the year before, so, I don't know, unless there was some blackout that we don't remember, it seems unlikely. But uh, Davis was such a, a huge superstar at that time, and you thought, this is just made for him to have this tale of redemption after his famous defeat in the final the year before. But, you know, Joe didn't just crawl over the line. It was eight yeah. all overnight. Played great, didn't he? Yeah. Really and he won well. 10 out of the 14 frames yeah. on the Monday. What a performance it was. Yeah. Joe, Terry, Stuart Bingham, all linked by one thing. They won the World Championship varying degrees, surprisingly. But they won it because they played absolutely brilliantly. Mm. Brilliantly. I mean, Terry Griffiths' performance <coughs> to win the World Championship in 79 was amazing. He dug so deep. It was ridiculous. He made so many great clearances. With Joe, his spotting was, was superb. Obviously, everyone remembers the final. But it was when he came back from 12-9 against Terry Griffiths to win 13-12. Yeah. I, w- I was working in a, in a betting office at the time uh, for Ladbrokes, and I saw it go 12-9, and the racing began, and I obviously lost track of it. And someone like said, how about Joe Johnson? I said, yeah, he gave a good go. And he was, mm. no, no, he won 13-12. I couldn't believe it. Got back and watched the match. Uh, there were some highlights on later in the evening. It, it wasn't just the fact that he came back from 12-9 to win 13-12. It was the way he did it. He just absolutely blitzed Terry for those four frames. Bingham I wouldn't put in the same category. In the quarterfinal, he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, who many people regard as the greatest player of all time. In the semi, he beat Judd Trump, who'd been the best player of the season. And in the final, possibly the most high-quality final ever, he beat Sean Murphy, who'd been probably the best player of the tournament. And he wouldn't have been able to do that without being a really you know, outstanding player. So, yes, we were all a bit and surprised. And he'd already won tournaments. He had well. already yeah. won tournaments yeah, as yeah. well, which the other two, uh, yeah. two hadn't. All three of those, incidentally, had uh, been outstanding amateurs. So they'd been used to winning at the highest level in the amateur scene, Johnson, Griffiths and Bingham. Graham Dot was actually a more surprising winner, I think, than Stewart. Hmm. I'm determined to get to at least M. So hmm. let's go to L. This is also misleading because and also slightly shoehorned because I've called it let's get the boys on the base but actually mm-hmm. it's not about Rob Walker specifically it's about people we, we all come to tournaments and obviously the public they see the players and that's what they think about but we know there are hundreds of people on the circuit that you meet there's referees master of ceremonies officials you know people who work for the TV and they're all part of the sort of travelling circus so I thought this was an opportunity to mention some of those and I thought we'd start with one of Rob's successors and the man who kind of changed that whole role which is Alan Hughes he was the, the first person to really bring a bit of panache and a bit of star to it yeah th- I think before there was a guy called David Harrison who did it and I actually liked you know his style as well it was very measured and it was it was of its time 
Uh, but then I think as, as time went on, you needed something a bit more, and Hughesy really brought it to that. And just what a funny man he was <laughs> as well. You know, I wish he could have brought that out more, but mm. there isn't really the scope for it in his act as it was, because that was how he saw it. And uh, yeah, he, he's, he's much missed. What age would Alan be now, actually? He's been his 80s, Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's about 30 years since we first saw him. Well, if you're listening to this, Alan, you know, you know how much I think of you. He was phenomenal. I once sat next to him on a plane. I can't remember whether it was going to Thailand or coming back from a tournament in Thailand, but it was either 11 or 12 hour flights. And at the end of it, my ribcage was hurting because he, I, we laughed all the way back. Okay. He's such a funny guy. But he was also very, very good. And I think he, he elevated the role of the, the Master of Ceremonies to, a, to a, a new degree. Obviously, you know, sometimes he made mistakes. I remember once he, uh, he inserted 15 verries before he... In- he announced Alex Higgins at the uh, at the assembly rooms in Derby because he'd forgotten who he was introducing. So it was a case of the very, 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 very. And Alex said, "The bleep has forgotten my name." Funny, funny you should mention that because Alex once walked into the arena, walked up to Hughesy, and took a leprechaun out of a plastic bag he was carrying and showed it to Alan as he walked into the arena. That again, actually, that was that British Open that. Uh, that chaperone won. Uh, he's a very interesting character, Alan. I must tell you a little bit about his background. He was a really good footballer. Um, mm. Tottenham, wasn't it, that he yeah, was he with? Yeah, played for Brentford, I think, Norwich. He was um, a good cricketer. Um, and he basically went into show business as a sort of MC for uh, a guy called Lovelace Watkins, who the older people listening to this would know. He was a former Golden Gloves winner in America, a really good amateur boxer who became a really well-known singer. And Alan was his sort of warm-up man, and he went to Vegas and all this and met all these kind of people so you know he'd had a, a good grounding in show business before he, he did what he did in snooker mm. he walked out of uh, an arena once after giving a big build up to this final second session of it it wasn't going very well in the first session and he'd built it up got the crowd into a frenzy over it told them what a great night it was going to be then he walked into the press room and said to us if you offered me £200 to watch this I'd say stick it in the poor box <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but it was yeah. a, I won't say who it was but it was a particularly dreadful say it was say it was it was King and okay <laughs> <laughs> I, I think yeah. I just thought Alan was hilarious and, and, and just a just a proper sort of character. You could always like whenever you saw him, you knew you'd get some old stories, particularly the old showbiz mm. years. Of course, now uh, it's just, the style has changed. A few people came and went in between. We have uh, Rob Walker to the BBC events, and also about Rob is um, and he's been on this podcast, but. If people are wondering if that's an act, that enthusiasm, it's not. That's how he is. He all tones the time. it down. He tones yeah. it down when he goes out into the arena. He's much more like that. Never seen anyone with yeah. so much energy. Yeah. Well, I don't think Rob has got. Uh, the normal internal organs. I think he's got a Duracell battery <laughs> where most people have got internal organs. He's, he's the most energetic and, and very likeable person I think you'll ever wish to meet. And also, as well, by the way, he genuinely l- loves snooker. I, I heard him uh, doing some interviews actually last week uh, for the BBC uh, at the Masters, and I thought he did a really good job. And, and he just loves his involvement with the game. And when he's at the Crucible and when he's at the big events like the Masters and stuff, he gets so hyped, you can't believe. Mm. I did MC once at a tournament in Ireland, and it was a semi final. I was halfway through building up whatever player it was, and the referee tapped me on the shoulder and told me he'd forgotten his gloves. And he had to go back to his room to get them. And while he was back there, the manager of one of the players noticed the table hadn't been brushed, so he got out of the audience, took all the balls off the table, brushed it down himself, set the balls back up just in time for the referee arriving back with his gloves and I could get on with the introductions. Wow, wow. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Rob, I think, is, is a sort of corrective to basically the three of us who are all weary cynics because he's not at all cynical. He, he seems incredibly... Um, he seems to understand 
the fortunate position he's in, working at a job that he loves, and just kind of radiates enthusiasm. And what people don't see, he does a lot of sort of backstage tours, and if people come to the tournament, you know, maybe for the first time, he makes a fuss of them, which is good, isn't it? You know? Well, you know, what I always think about Rob is, right, he's just an absolute, you know, ray of sunshine where as you say us all cynics yeah. uh, you know uh, a sort of ray of darkness I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always pity because he's your father obviously when he gets teenage children and they want to stay in bed all day because teenagers do don't they <laughs> it, I mean you know he will not like that we People often say to me, you know, when they find out what you do, oh, you know, you must spend all your time with the players. But actually, we don't really, because obviously players come, they have their routine, and they get knocked out and they go home. We've spent a lot of time down the years, particularly in overseas trips with the referees, who are, to a man and a woman, a good bunch of people, aren't they? You know, because they, they have snooker sort of running through their veins. Yes, and I think as the standard of play has improved over the years, the standard of refereeing also improved. When I first came on the circuit in 1988... Regularly, there used to be refereeing stories about, you know, uh, mistakes being made or some controversy, whether a mistake had been made or not. You never see those, or at least very, very rarely now. Uh, I think in the 90s, you know, you've got people like Colin Brindhead and Laurie Annandale who were absolutely excellent at what they did. Nowadays, you've got people like Brendan Moore, Jan Verhaas, um, Paul Collier, who was brilliant, you know. And I think the guys at the top end... I think they're the best referees the game has ever had. The yeah. level of concentration you need, because of course you need massive concentration to play, but you're not at the table the whole time. And, uh, and if you make a mistake, it's only on you. you know, yeah. It, it don't, doesn't affect anyone else, and then you go back and sit down. But the refs have to keep their concentration at absolute maximum for anything up to three, four hours at a time. I'm just absolutely in awe of their ability to do that, yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the top refs to, uh, to the extent that they do. And there's one actual quirk with refereeing, because... The most famous referee in snooker history is Len Ganley. Mm. Uh, massive so, celebrity in his ma- day. Massive yeah. celebrity in his day. You know, the ball-crushing advert and all that kind of stuff, and larger-than-life character. Um, and yet, he made more mistakes over the years than mm. all of the top guys nowadays have made in their lives put together. It's a bit like Jimmy being the most popular player, largely because he never won yeah. the World Championship. Well, there's that story Dennis Taylor told about. It was some match he was playing, and... Um, he was querying whether it was a free ball or not, and Len was insistent that it wasn't. So Dennis said, well, you know, I think it is. I want a second opinion. So Len's got down again and said, no, it's not a free ball. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the way to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, Len, I thought, was very, very good for snooker because, um, as I say, larger-than-life character, and at a time when the game was... As Barry Hearn said, a soap opera with balls, he was an integral part of it. And I think he, he helped snooker immensely and he was good fun to have around and all that kind Could of stuff. Could handle a crowd as well. Yeah, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying he was a bad referee, far from it. And he, he was very, as you say, very stern with crowds and good like that. But he did make quite a few mistakes, there's no doubt about mm. it. And the guys now don't make them. Mm. Obviously, there's a lot of people who've worked for World Snooker down the years. I just want to mention one. He's told me he never listens to the podcast, so we can talk about him. Ivan Hercevich, who's the uh, long-standing, long-surviving media whatever manager, whatever his press, his press, press officer, whatever his job title is. Um, he's been there, I think, 17 years. Yeah, said. 2001. <laughs> so, yeah, it would be 17 yeah. and, and, and a few months. Yeah, Ivan is actually, and you wouldn't know what to meet him, but he's actually an extremely funny man yeah. himself, just yes. you know, with the little quips. Doesn't say a lot, but when he does, <laughs> you listen, because yes. it's generally you know, something insightful or, or hilarious. Pretty good player himself, actually, and, yeah. and a very good golfer, too. He, I think he's a Zen master in disguise, Ivan, because I've never met anyone 
with a level of patience mm. like him. You know, and he's, he's needed it. He's needed it. I mean, particularly in the turbulent political days when Snooker was not in as good a place as it is now by any means. And he was the sort of brunt of it. You know, he'd have all the journalists going to him with their mostly legitimate moans. He'd have players going to him with moans and all. And then, of course, he'd have the, 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 the board and all that kind of stuff. And he, he was being sort of pressurised from all sides. And I never, never saw him flustered. I've never seen him angry. And I, I always think he's, he's very level-headed and he does a really good job. Yeah, and I think you know Will, Will Snooker have uh, been lucky to have him overall. But if you try and get a comment out of him about anything, you've got no chance. <laughs> which is good, of course. That's his job. Uh, I did say we get to M. So M, well, we're here at the Championship League, which is one of the many events promoted by Matchroom, um, who, of course, uh, sort of started in snooker and diversified into boxing and darts and football and poker and pool and all sorts of other things. But it started for Barry Hearn. Uh, with snooker and of course it's come full circle because he's come back to it as well snooker chairman you look at all the different events he ran back in the 80s he was the one who tried to get the world series off Mm. the ground and well got three events in and then it didn't really work out after that and it came back in other guises but you know in between the sort of standard ranking events in the 80s and early 90s there was actually hardly a, a week went by that there wasn't something going on in belgium or thailand or somewhere that that he was involved in promoting and you know you would just see you know, so much more snooker than you know you, you would have done without Barry um, back in those days. To to fill in those gaps, you had a thing called the London Masters yeah. that I remember it was sort of you know one match at a time over a period of about seven or eight months. Lots of ideas and brought so much variety to the circuit. And you know that's something that he's uh, really tried to continue in his role as chairman is that he doesn't want every tournament to be the same, and he's always coming up with. Uh, with new ideas. Not afraid to fail either. Not everything's worked, but like you say, you've got ideas, and they're not just ideas, he actually makes them happen. And whether they work or not, he tries them. And, and it, but I think it's, it's been such an incredible story, hasn't it? Having, you know, obviously owned snooker clubs, Steve Davis walks in one day, and the rest literally is history. Mm. Well, what's happened since he took over the game as chairman of the WSA? It's basically transformational. We had the BBC coming in in the late 70s and covering the World Championship. And then there was this explosion in popularity, which, you know, through to the late 80s. And then let's face it, the next 20 years, all of that goodwill and popularity and momentum was wasted. It was by successive administrations and regimes who were either inept or just couldn't, you know, just couldn't do the job for whatever reason. And then Barry comes in, benign dictatorship, and the game has been transformed so much for the better. Now, look, people say, oh yeah, you know, he does a lot of work for Matchroom that affiliates, you know, he's biased. Let's also say that. Okay, I'll lay my cards on the table. I love the man. He is absolutely brilliant, and what he's done for snooker, there should be every single player on the circuit and those on the Challenge Tour who are trying to get on, they should every morning say, thank you, Barry, because he I think is... Barry would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he might actually bring it in as part of the player's <laughs> contract next season. Can, I mean, we were talking about this, we always mention this, that season when there were six tournaments in the Masters, and they weren't playing for a great amount of money in, in many of the six tournaments. Now, all of a sudden, you've got all of these tournaments playing for massive money, and the money's going to continue to go up. I, I heard the other day the first prize at the Masters next year Instead of being 200,000 that Judd Trump has just won, it's going to be 250,000. And this money will continue to rise because he's got such good contacts, he's got such TV contacts. And he's also, I think we should say as well, he's also got a very good team. You know, yeah. Barry obviously is the figurehead and very, very energetic. I mean, he's 70 now and he still works hard, but there's a lot of people also at Matchroom who have got the same ethos as him. They're all hard workers. 
I think it's only now in this time of plenty that we truly realise how bleak things have become about 10 years ago. And it's an interesting question with no real answer to it. Where would the game be now if Barry hadn't got involved? And only a year or two before he did come back in, he was asked, would you like to come back and run the sport? And he was like, nah, I think it's almost beyond help at this stage. So it's just scary almost, but fascinating at the same time to think if things had just trundled on as they were. And remember, you know, it was, it was going the wrong way as well. It was going on a downward trajectory. How far down would we have sunk now by 2019? Yeah, and I think also it's proof of a couple of things. One, um, all the contacts he built up over the years with TV companies and so on, so that he could go to, for example, ITV4 and say, look, I'll package these events for you. But but also he's negotiating talents. I mean, Jason Francis said from the, from the snooker legends, he, he went to see him for the first time and, and basically Barry just had him over a barrel within about five minutes because he's just a genius negotiator. Yeah. He deals with such certainty, doesn't he? You know, I mean, it's, and sometimes that's not a good thing, but most of the time it's a great thing you know you go in this is the way it's going to be this is the deal and there's no negotiation going on here and look he gets things done so no arguing with that and he's also got this great communicating ability he can talk to anyone whether it be you know a cat or a queen you know he's he's he feels comfortable in any company when he's in our company he's so open and and humorous and and it's not forced either you can just genuinely laugh with the guy and what he's done not just for snooker but for other sports as well darts you know the boxing is going so well at the moment he runs a a third division uh, golf tour called the Euro Pro Tour which is really successful you know everything he does He's got the Midas touch. But where will we be without him? Because he's not going to go on forever. Not here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what age is he now? Seventy. Seventy. Well, I mean, you know, he's, he's not going to go on forever, and uh, you just hope. Then I'm sure he's aware of it that you know he he will leave behind some sort of legacy in terms of you know that he's put solid foundations in place that whoever comes after him will be able to continue on the phenomenal success that he's brought to the game over the last ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we're at Barry Hearn's Championship League, which again was something that kind of sounded like it could never work, but it's been going for what? Well, this is year 12. Year 12, and we've got to go and commentate on it now, so we're going to have to stop, but we will return. We've got halfway through the alphabet in, is that three podcasts? That's not bad. So we should get it finished by about 2026. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.